The Bible reading is from Proverbs 16. Oh, Proverbs 16, 1 to 9. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord come the proper answer of the tongue. All of a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way... He causes their enemies to make peace with them. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks God for your word and that uh, yeah, it never fails us. It uh, teaches us your truth and draws us into a deeper relationship because it reveals to us Jesus. And help us this morning as we read it, uh, that we'll gain an understanding that will make us more like you and be for your glory. Amen. New Year's Eve. Um, This is a memorable time for me in my ministry career, New Year's Eve, right? Because every preacher uh, has a moment that they look back on with uh, great fondness. Um, It's the anniversary of the longest sermon I ever preached, right? Um, I don't think it was actually New Year's Eve, because I looked back through that. I, th- I thought it was New Year's Eve, but I looked back through the historical calendar, and there was no, there hasn't been a 31st of December on a Sunday for ages. So, but it was the New Year's Eve service, right, somehow. But anyway, let's just, let's just think it was New Year's Eve. Um, so yeah, my wife reckons longest sermon I've ever preached, right? Uh, it wasn't recorded, which is probably good for everyone. Um, it was at Belmont Baptist Church. And I was the intern, the youth intern, right? And being the intern, you get all the glorious opportunities to preach, right? Evening service, grand final night, every year, right? And if you know anything about Newcastle, they're quite fond of rugby league. And so you're preaching, a church of 200 people, you're preaching to four, right? Every year, me. Uh, and it so happened to be the long weekend that the senior pastor took off every year, right? Um, uh, every single long weekend would also be my go as well. Um, and then, when, when fate would have it, a New Year's Eve or thereabouts arrived on a Sunday evening, the lot fell to me, right? Um, and so, it was the faithful remnant in attendance. Nothing like there is today. It would have been probably less than 20 people there. Uh, and it was, it was made even worse. It was less people than usual because of this terrifying heat wave we had, right? So, I think it was 42 degrees or something like that in a church with no... Uh, I remember it was that hot, and when I got home, I had a cold shower, and I got out of the shower and got my towel and put the towel on, and it felt like it had come out of a dryer, right? And, and it was inside. This is how hot it was. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it was 40-degree heat, so there was even less people there, and I treated those in attendance to what can only be described as an hour-long verbal sedative. And uh, <laughs> Jackie, Jackie, my wife, told me that by the end, she felt angry. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's some sort of righteous anger or what, but that, that's how she felt at the end, right? Um, and the sweet irony is that that same heat that kept people home on that summer evening 
is the only thing that prevented those in attendance from drifting off during my sermon. Um, and so this morning, to celebrate the anniversary of that milestone, uh, no, I won't. I'll spare you. Um, Preaching a standalone sermon on New Year's Eve, it's a strange one, eh? Because you don't want to ignore the elephant in the room. Everyone's thinking about New Year's Eve. You're like, I want to avoid these cliches like New Year, New Me, fresh start stuff. But but you can't really avoid preaching about New Year's Eve on New Year's Eve, right? And so we'll do that. Uh, We're going to ask the question, what can the Bible tell us about the coming year, right? What's the Bible going to tell us about the coming year? What does it predict? Specifically, you want to know what it is? Well, nothing really. The Bible doesn't speak anything specifically about 2018. Maybe if you're one of those charts people, like you might be able to work out something related to Trump and Putin and stuff, but I don't think the Bible does that. Uh, but, but generally, the Bible uh, can tell us a lot. The Bible can tell us a lot about the coming year because it tells us a lot about the one who is in control of the coming year, who already knows what's coming up. Uh, some may say he's even mapped it all out. And as James mentioned earlier, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, it's a time of mixed emotions uh, because maybe it's excitement about what's to come. You're just keen for what's next. You know something cool is going to happen or you're expectant about something great next year or maybe it's a relief that this year is finally over. Like, I'm glad that that's done. I'm glad I can leave that behind me. Maybe it's fear about what's around the corner. Or maybe it's just ambivalence. What, who cares the relation of the sun to the earth? Let's just get on with life, right? Um, for me, I like fresh starts, so New Year is always welcome. This year's going to be big, a lot of big changes. My wife, after 13 years working for New South Wales Health, will be plucked away and have to work for the man up at French's Forest in the new hospital. My daughter's starting school, which will be like a big step. I'm starting a new job for an organisation I'm a bit unsure about. Uh, <laughs> If you don't know, that's here. I'm working here, and I'm not unsure of the organisation. Um, but it's like there's a bit of excitement and anxiety coming up for me in this next year. A lot of unknown, right? Um, you would have seen in the bulletin that the title of this sermon is "What's Next." What's next, right? And it's a question that might be on our minds at this time of year, but it can be posed both positively and negatively, right? You may sigh it. What's next? Or you may shout it expectantly, like, "What's next? Come on, bring it on!" Right? And often our attitude to a new year comes as a response to what happened in the previous year, right? So how was 2017 for you? Financial difficulties, loss of a job, broken relationships, ongoing health problems, loss of a loved one, difficult marriage, just even the general devastating brokenness and injustice of the world weighing down on you. Maybe feeling stuck in what feels like an unending wheel of bad luck. Are you like a poor tourist on a rough Sydney beach being pounded by wave after wave, only lifting your head for a brief enough moment between each set to sigh out, what's next? And where's the energy going to come? Or has your 2017 been a bit more positive, right? Stability, romance, prosperity, fun, good health, positivity, and an optimistic view of things to come, right? And you're out in that same surf, but you're a seasoned surfer and you're loving it. You're asking, what's next? What's next? When's this next set coming, right? And so this morning, I want to look at a story from the Bible that speaks to people in both camps. It's a story familiar to all of us, and its application probably is as well. It's the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And it's important to hear 
today because it's going to do two things. It's going to humble those who excitedly shout, what's next, right? It's going to, it's going to sort of keep you level-headed. Uh, but it will also, hopefully, bring encouragement to those who sigh, what's next? How? Well, this story reminds us that God is in total control. And that truth is both comforting and terrifying, isn't it? Comforting to know that he is in control, but terrifying to know that really I have, I have no control over this life. But it will remind us of the many proverbs we had read earlier, which we'll get back into, uh, and will point us towards an even greater story where God wields his sovereignty for the good of those who love him. So Joseph's story, um, it's really long, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it. I'll tell it to you. Hopefully I won't miss anything, right? So uh, Abraham, the, the heir of God's promise, right? God chooses Abraham to, to start a new nation. He has a son, Isaac, who carries on the promises. He has a son, Jacob, who carries on the promises, right? And then Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, and his 11th son is Joseph. And Joseph is his favorite son, right? And if you have kids, you know you're not supposed to have a favorite kid, right? That's a big no-no. I'm, but if you have kids, you know that some days you like one more than the other, right? Um, but, but Joseph, this, was, this sort of happened all the time, right? Joseph was the favorite. And it wasn't helped by the fact that he would go and give bad reports of his other brothers to his dad. He's like, oh, dad, the boys are doing such and such, right? But his dad favored him that much that he made him a really cool coat, like, I don't know if it was Technicolor, that word's not in the original Hebrew, but it, it, was, it was fancy, right? People, like, people looked at it and envied it, and his brothers were angry about this coat he had. And then to make matters even worse, Joseph started having these dreams, which when he interpreted them, meant that his mother, his father, and his brothers would bow down before him. Now, if you're already disliked by your older brothers, don't tell them that. But he did. He told them that, uh, that oh, I had this dream. And they got even more angry. And then one day they're out tending the sheep. They see Joseph coming from a while, uh, from, from, from a fair distance. They're like, here's our chance. Let's kill that dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. They were that jealous, right? Uh, and, and as they got closer, one of the brothers said, no, nah, let's not kill him. They just grabbed him instead, chucked him down in a hole, right? And then just waited, discussed what they would do. And then some uh, caravan of traders came cruising past from Egypt. Like, That's what we'll do. Can at least get some profit out of this. Let's sell him. And so they call the traders over. Hey, you want to buy someone? Yeah, that's what we do. All right, cool. Here's our brother. Um, sold him for a bunch of pieces of silver. Joseph got taken, sent off uh, into Egypt as a slave. The brothers took his special coat, dipped it in animal's blood, went back home to Jacob. Dad, sorry, did all we could. Wild animal tore your son to pieces, right? And Jacob was devastated. Cut back to Egypt, there's Joseph, he's a slave in the house of this guy called Potiphar, and Potiphar is a a royal official to Pharaoh, quite up there. And Joseph does so well as a slave in this household that he gets promoted to like king of the slaves, I suppose. He's in charge, he's the manager of the whole household. Uh, Everything is at at his disposal, everything that Potiphar owns, he he can use. He has power, he has authority, he has uh, prosperity, he's got everything going for him, right? He's probably shouting now like, What's next? This is great. I thought this was going to be bad, but everything's turned out all right. Now I'm like living in luxury. But then Joseph was a handsome young man and Potiphar's wife um, took a liking to him and she would, uh, she'd grab him when they were alone. She'd be like, come on, let's, let's get it on. And he'd be like, no, I don't want to. You're married. Uh, I res- I, 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 I'm not going to do that. I respect my God and I'm not going to do that. 
But she kept trying and trying and persisting and persisting. And one day she got him when they were alone. And she grabbed him. She's like, come on, let's get it on. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. But she, and, and he goes to run. And she grabs a hold of his coat and rips it. He runs out of there. She screams out. The guards come in. She's like, look, I've got his cloak. He tried to rape me. Uh, and then Joseph was thrown into prison. Thrown into prison, right? Again, completely unjustly treated. He did nothing wrong and unjustly thrown into prison because of someone else's sin, right? And Joseph is in prison. But he did so well as a prisoner that he sort of rose through the prison ranks. I don't know if you ever watched those prison shows. Maybe he was like, maybe he had some good contraband he could get in. I'm not sure how it worked. But he became well respected in the prison and uh, he, he was right up there. But then one day, a uh, couple of guys in the prison had, had some dreams, really couldn't understand them. Joseph interpreted them. Uh, and then one of, one of these guys ended up leaving prison and going and being the cupbearer for Pharaoh. Then one day, Pharaoh had this crazy dream where seven skinny cows swallowed up seven fat cows. And Pharaoh freaked out. He couldn't sleep. He, he, he was concerned about this dream. He said, does anyone interpret dreams? And everyone's like, oh, no idea. And this cupbearer said, oh, this dude in jail with me. He does. You imagine Pharaoh, like, I'm sure they all do, mate. But he, but he, but he gets him up, right? And, uh, and, and Joseph comes and stands before... This is Joseph, a, a dude from another country that was sold into slavery, thrown in jail, is now standing before the ultimate superpower in the world and interpreted his dream. He said it means you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So I advise you, great Pharaoh, to keep aside plenty during those seven years uh, so that you'll be able to feed all your people in the surrounding nations the seven years after. Pharaoh was stoked by this interpretation, made Joseph prime minister or prince of Egypt, right? If you believe the Disney movies. And he, he became prince of Egypt. He was in charge of pretty much everything. He, he supplied grain and food to people from all around the known world to, to stop them from starving to death, right? And then, an ironic twist of fate, his brothers came begging Joseph, just like that dream he had, and bowed down before him, we need some grain. They didn't know it was Joseph. Joseph knew it was them. Eventually, after a few tests, Joseph revealed himself to them and, and they were worried, right? Joseph is like the second most powerful dude in the world right now and, and they're in his debt. Uh, but the book of Genesis finishes with this. They go to Joseph and they're like, we're your slaves, just don't kill us, we'll be your slaves. Joseph says this, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's a cool story, right? It teaches us about forgiveness, the, the importance of hard work and a positive attitude and all that sort of stuff, but, but that's not why it's in the Bible, right? Uh, it's in the Bible because it teaches us about God's sovereign control. It teaches us that no matter what spinners us sinners throw in the works, God gets his business done. And Joseph's words at the end there, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, are a summary not only of Joseph's life, but of the book of Genesis as a whole. We see time and time again people messing with God's world and God's plans, and yet time and time again God keeps coming out on top. Nothing surprises him, nothing shocks him. There's no plan B, there's just the one plan set out before the creation of the world. And so the story of Joseph really is not Joseph's story. It's God's story. I think we can take encouragement from the fact that 2018 is not going to be your story. It's going to be God's story. And so how does this apply to our lives in the coming year? Well, 
to apply it, we need to understand, firstly, that God has not abandoned the world he created, but instead he controls all that takes place in it, right? God's not abandoned the world he created, he controls all that takes place in it. And we call this providence. The word providence refers to God's preservation of his creation, directing it towards his end. It's God preserving and directing his creation to his end, to his means, to where he wants it to go, right? Providence. Remember that? I'll mention it a few times in the sermon. So how do we apply it? Well, firstly, for those of us who are excited about the year to come, right? They're keen. They're they're looking forward. They're saying, what's next? Come on, bring it on. 2018, this is going to be sick, right? Here's what this story can teach you. Uh, I've got a slide. Can you flick that up? Is it on there? There you go. Here's what it can teach you. Past experience. Hard work and godliness do not guarantee future success, right? Past experience, hard work and godliness do not guarantee future success. And so for those of us with a positive outlook, excited about the coming year, Joseph's story reminds us to stay humble. We see Joseph a few times in positions of power or prosperity or ease, and I'm sure he was excited, shouting, what's next? Bring it on, I'm the favourite son, this is great. But, but his story reminds us how fickle fame, fortune and prosperity are, right? Favourite son to slave. Sweet jacket to slave clothes. Top dog in Potiphar's house, unjustly thrown into prison. And neither of these situations were his doing. They weren't due to his poor planning or stupidity or even his personal sin. Uh, Both times it was the sin of others that caused it, right? And it was completely out of his control. Uh, This reminds us that we... Oh, sorry, this is, this is echoed in the Proverbs that we had read earlier. If you go to the next slide, we'll go through a couple of them. Uh, 16.1 says this, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. It's telling us that we can carefully plan our lives out, but, but God can overrule it. He has the final say. Uh, verse 9 uh, tells us, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Again, it reiterates what verse 1 says. We're given the privilege to participate in our own fate, in our own journey. We aren't robots, but, but make no mistake, all that comes to pass is the Lord's will and the Lord's doing. Now, don't mishear it. This is not a license to be idle and to just leave everything up to God's will, right? We are to plan and to work hard, but know that God's providence is what actually determines the outcome. And I think... If you're in a situation of, of, of prosperity or whatever at the moment, I think, for me at least, pride very easily creeps in, right? Constantly, it's a battle we need to fight. And for the last few years, things have gone pretty well for me. And it's very easy to think that this is a result of my hard work, right? Or my supreme intelligence, or my wonderful godliness, or my thoughtful planning ahead, or my wife doing everything for me, maybe. But... <laughs> But even, even though all these things, godliness, working hard, planning ahead, they're all good, we can't expect that we have hit the magic formula by doing these things. It's humbling to think that there are many people more godly and harder working than me that don't have it as good as me. That don't have it as good as me and that at any moment, in the providential will of God, we could be trading places. And this knowledge shouldn't cause you to live in fear of what may be ahead but it should cause us to grow in our love and trust of God so that we may be able to say, like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, 
This is an oft-quoted verse, right? All the time, people, it's a good one, right? I suppose cliches are cliches for a reason. He says this, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Notice Paul's words. He's not giving us a secret to success, is it? The Bible's not like, he, follow the Bible, this is just secret to success. It's not even a Bible. But it's, he, he's not giving us the secret formula to everything going well and to ensure your own prosperity. That's not, the, that's not the Bible's point. He's telling us the secret though. He has learned the secret of being content in all situations. He has learned how to do it. He's picked it up, he's got it. He knows how to be content in all situations and he's sharing it with us. And you want to know what it is? Find your strength in Christ. Find your strength in Christ, not in your momentary prosperity or your momentary good health, not in your godliness or hard work, but in a God who's in control of all of that and that you can trust. With that in mind, we still have to make it clear that God does not treat us like we're pawns in some sort of sick game of cosmic chess, as some people might put it. That's not how God rolls things, right? Um, His will and providence is wielded for his glory and for the good of those who love him. We'll we'll get to that a bit more in a moment. But if you're excited about next year, be humble about it, right? It's in God's hands, not yours. But maybe for those of us who are concerned about the year to come, how, how does that apply to you? Well, here's what this story can teach us. The suffering and the fear that you now experience will be used by God for his perfect purposes. And we're not just going to learn this from this one story. It's dangerous to take things from one story and think that it applies to all of us. But we're going to unpack what the Bible has to say about this as well, right? Joseph's line to close out the book of Genesis is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. I've read it twice already. We'll go again. You intended to harm me, Joseph said, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's powerful. It gives hope there at the end of Genesis. It teaches us that that God is in control, right? Even horrible situations, God's controlling it. It teaches us that Joseph's suffering was not in vain. It actually accomplished a tremendous feat, the saving of hundreds of thousands of lives. And as as we read through the remainder of the Bible, we see that the same is true of all Christians. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says that the whole world is groaning in pain, right? Romans 8. The whole world is groaning in pain, waiting for God's purposes to be revealed. All is not as it should be. But then he says something remarkable in verse 28. You may have heard this a thousand times as well, right? He says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's Christians, right? So God works for the good of Christians in all things. And again, we think about Paul's context, Paul's suffering quite a lot through his life yet he still says this see from this that the words of joseph are true for all christians god is using your suffering for good now it may not seem like much fun and and it offers on the surface level it, it may offer very little consolation in the midst of your suffering and trauma i recognize that but we are promised that somehow even beyond our human comprehension, which is so limited, somehow God is using this for your good. 
We may not see the fruits of it until we meet him face to face. Paul certainly didn't. Paul was killed for his beliefs. But even amidst that, Paul could say, in that great suffering, God is using all things for the good of those who love him. Uh, Tim Keller, you may have heard of him, he's an American pastor and author, um, he paraphrases that Romans verse like this, right? He says, God will always give you what you would have asked if you knew what he knows. God will always give you what you would have asked if you knew what he knows, right? It always reminds me, when I was a kid, I asked Dad for a raw sausage. He was cooking a barbecue, I'm like, can I eat that? And he wouldn't let me have it, and I was really upset. Now I'm an adult, I'm stoked Dad didn't give me that raw sausage, right? Um, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. And you may be in a situation where you're like, what? there is no way in the world I would ask for this. For me, or for that loved one of mine. We're reminded time and time again that God's, God's greatness is so far beyond anything we can comprehend. And whilst it stings and hurts, we, we, we follow and trust a God who, who somehow, somehow, is bringing it all together. God, in his perfect sovereign knowledge and his providence, knows what is best. And in his omnipotence, he's able to ensure that every situation, for every believer throughout all time, works for their good and for the good of his people. We saw it in Joseph. We hear it from Paul and it's littered all throughout scripture. Our Proverbs passages again offer us some words of encouragement. Uh, If we look towards a year that we're quite unsure about, verse 4, this verse is telling us, uh, here we go, verse 4, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. This verse is telling us that everything, again, everything's moving towards God's purposes. Everything's moving towards God's purposes. And God's purposes are good. God's purposes are perfect and holy and are for his people and his glory. And it even tells us that those responsible for evil will be held accountable. Those responsible for evil will be held accountable. They'll either take it on themselves or it has been absorbed by Jesus. Verse 8 Uh, says this, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Now, if you're in a... When when we're in positions of of suffering or difficulty, this verse, again, may not offer much solace, but it is a good reminder of what is most important. We're better to to be poor and righteous and in God's care than being not a follower of Jesus and, and having everything, right? Why? Well, that verse from Romans, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's Christians. If you're a Christian, God is working all things towards your good and his people, right? If you're not a Christian, that verse is not true of you. And so that's why it's better to have little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The beauty is that that's an invitation open to anyone, that anyone here today can say, Jesus, I I want to be called according to your purpose because I reckon your will is heaps better than mine. So, another point I want to make is this. Your story is not your story. It's God's story. 
Think back to Joseph's story. It, that's not included in Genesis as an example of, uh, for us to how to thrive in difficulties, right? Very little is said about Joseph's attitude. Very little is said about Joseph's thought process throughout the whole thing. Why? Because it's not important. That's not why it's there. Maybe he's got a great model of forgiveness, yeah, but that's not why the story is thrown in the Bible, right? Uh, it's included in the Bible to teach us about God's providence and, as we'll see in a moment, to point us towards God's answer to all this. It's all God's story. Joseph's story is God's story. Paul's story is God's story. And so your suffering and the good that God will bring about from it may not necessarily be immediate or even personal. Joseph's elevation to power at the end was not for his own good. That wasn't some sort of reward for working so hard. What was it for? The saving of many lives. The preservation of that promised line of Abraham so that the Messiah may come and save the world. Paul's suffering earned, earned no real earthly individual benefit. It made him a stronger Christian. It, uh, it prepared him for the life uh, to come in heaven. But, but it did ensure that the gospel was proclaimed. And it ensured the continuation of God's covenant people and that all nations would, would come to rest under the shade of its branches. It's not our story. It's God's story. God has made promises. He will keep them. And we are blessed to be a part of that. As, as crude as it may seem, that blessing is the right word to use. When God works for the good of those who love him, right? The those in its greatest sense is talking about the people of God. The larger people of God, not just the individual. And so in your sufferings, you can rejoice that God may be doing a greater work in you. But that God is definitely doing a greater work for his people in the keeping of his promises. That like Joseph, you can play a part in, the, in, this, in, in something that goes far beyond your own personal experience. We may not see the answer. God is faithful. Take heart. Seek prayer and advice. Plan and work towards a better future. But know that a loving and powerful God wields his providence for your sake and for the sake of all his people. And that our contentment lies in trusting Christ. Christ. Let's finish on that name. One of my favourite books, and I've quoted it regularly, is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you don't have it, get a copy. It's heaps good. Even if you're not a kid, it's, like, it's really good. Right? Uh, she concludes her retelling of the story of Joseph with these words. Right? She refers to Joseph as the Prince of Egypt. She says this, One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished, even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. That's cool, isn't it? So this story of Joseph is there to remind us of God's providence, but to remind us of of the greater Joseph to come, who would not only rescue people from famine, but would rescue the world from their sins. This prince, Jesus, the fulfillment of the Joseph story, the fulfillment of the wisdom of Proverbs. He is the one who has suffered and died to bring about the good purposes of God, to put the stamp on it, to put the seal on it. And when we look at the beautiful way that God weaves his story together, we see that he lovingly involves us in the sufferings of Christ 
in the glory of Christ, in the hope of the world to come. And so when we succeed, we know that it is for God's glory. When we suffer, we know that somehow we are playing our part in the master storyteller's grand narrative, the story of a loving God who keeps his promises. And he promises that 2018 is in his hands. He knows what's next. And he will use it for the good of his people. Let's pray. God, even though it's frightening to relinquish control to someone else, uh, I'm I'm stoked that the one taking control uh, is you, is the sovereign, omnipotent, loving, generous, forgiving, gracious, creator of all things. Help us, whatever situation we're in, to remember that all things are in your hands. So to be prayerful and to plan carefully and thoughtfully, but to know that you are leading our uh, paths and you will guide us to where you would have us go. And Lord, in those times of uh, either plenty or nothing, help us to find contentment in you. To know that with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have the power uh, to do all things. Amen.